You're listening to Understanding Sin and Evil. Dr. Miriam Brand on the Bible, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Ancient World. Learn more at understandingsin.com. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Miriam Brand back with another exciting episode, and I'm here with my friend Melissa. Hi, everybody. And uh, we're going to talk today about intergenerational punishment. Now, last time we talked about collective punishment. We're continuing that idea because I want to talk also about how both of these ideas changed over time. And we talked about that a teeny bit last time, but we're going to delve into a little bit more now. And I'm going to remind you of some things that we found were interesting about collective punishment. One of them was that with collective punishment, we have, there's a general idea that this is problematic right? This is somehow against the basic morality. And we see this in the dialogue, right, between Avram and God, that there's this dialogue in which there's an idea that the righteous should not be killed with the wicked. This is kind of against the basic morality. And yet this is the way the world works. In fact, when the marauding army comes, everyone gets it. And that's why in most of the biblical prophets, or yeah, I would say the majority of the biblical prophets, until you get to the very end of the first temple period, you have this idea that, in fact, everyone is going to be in danger, right? And the righteous may be saved, but it's not a guarantee. There will be, so for example, we have the, the famous remnant in Yeshayahu and, and Isaiah. And that remnant is, it can be, one hopes that it's righteous, but it's a remnant. In other words, it's not that you're going to be completely safe. As Amos says, why do you want the day of the Lord? It is a day of darkness and not light. What does he mean? He means, guys, you're going to die. That's what he means, right? He means that the day when you, once you have a divine justice, don't think that you're going to get away scot-free. And yet, and yet, as we move towards the end of the first temple period and then into the second temple period, or well, into the exile, obviously, and then into back, then into the second temple period, we do have the idea that collective punishment is not always the way the world works. Now, again, one of the things that we distinguished last time was there's collective punishment by God to people. In other words, this is the way the world works, that when something bad is happening to a city or to a land, everyone suffers. And then there's the idea of what people do. And people are not allowed to collectively punish, except in very specific instances. And in those specific instances, only when they really investigate, they have to really investigate. And therefore, in the Bible, when God delivers collective punishment, he is described as investigating. Let's go down and see. He goes down and investigates because you are never, one never delivers collective punishment without investigating and seeing the whole story. And we saw the whole story of uh, the concubine of Gibeah, where we have this kind of rolling error where no one is acting the way they should, but also the outrage at immoral activity is what's driving constant collective decisions that are wrong. Without investigating, the outrage is enough for people to decide, let's destroy a whole town, let's destroy a whole tribe, let's make sure they can't marry, and that keeps on adding and leading to further and further injustice. I have a strong desire to spend one class simply walking through that story, but I'm going to keep myself back from it for a while. I think, until I, I, I address larger topics. So that's what we saw in, in terms of collective punishment. This is something that there's, is really problematic. However, it's the way the world works. People are not allowed to do it 
except in very specific instances, and only then, after really, really investigating that the circumstances are in fact correct and require this kind of extreme collective punishment. And there's a shift. There's a shift when we, that we once we get to the end of the first temple period that this is simply not the way the world works anymore. As we talk about intergenerational punishment, we're going to come back to this shift and once again examine why do we have this shift in understanding of both intergenerational punishment and collective punishment. So one of the basic differences between the approach to collective punishment, and I'm talking about collective divine punishment, and intergenerational divine punishment, what I mean by intergenerational punishment is that future generations are punished for what previous generations did. Okay, so one of the big differences is that while collective punishment is presented as a problem, let, let's face it, it's, it's, not, it's not ideal. This may be the way the world works because, frankly, if you live in a town, the town gets hit, you're going to get hit. It may be the way the world works, but it's problematic from a moral standpoint. It's problematic that we see in the dialogue between Avram and, and God, and it's problematic in terms of the, the way that you have to investigate. Even God, quote-unquote, has to investigate. So... This is something we don't see with intergenerational punishment. Now, I'm going to read from the classic, what in traditional Judaism, we're used to from the Shlosh Yisrael Midot, right? The 13 attributes, okay? So the 13 attributes are actually only part of the verse. I'm going to go back. I'm going to read from Shmot, that's Exodus, uh, Lama Dalad Vav Tazayin, that's 34, 6 to 7. And now this is when God is, in a way, as it were, revealing his attributes to to Moshe. Okay, so it says, God goes down the cloud, etc. And God passes over his face and either he, who calls exactly? Is Moshe spontaneously calling? Is it a sound that's happening? What's going on? But it's God, God, or rather Lord, Lord, right? It's Yudke Vavke. Lord, Lord, um, I'm going to read it, but not with the name of God. Hashem, Hashem, kel rachum v'chanon, erach ha'payim v'rav chesed ve'emet, noser chesed l'alafim, noser avon v'fesha v'chata'a, v'nake is where the 13 midot end, right? But that's not the actual whole phrase. It's v'nake lo y'nake. I'm going to go back and translate this in just a bit. Poked avon avot al-banim v'al-b'nei v'anim al-shileishim v'al-ribeim. Okay, now I'm going to translate, and I'll note where the 13 attributes end, and and what that means, okay? So what in the way the 13 attributes are used in Judaism, of course, is a call for mercy from God. It's a traditional call for mercy. It's a saying God and saying all his attributes of mercy so that he will be merciful on us. And and and, and we are in, in that, we're repeating kind of the biblical practice and the idea that this is the way Moshe got the Israelites out of all dying immediately for the golden calf by calling on God's attributes of mercy, okay? However, we stop in the middle to get the 13 attributes because we want them all to be merciful. So I'm going to read them all now. So it's Lord, Lord, right? Merciful, and it's it's kind of two words for mercy, right? Rachum v'chanun, two types of mercy that God has. Erech long to anger, in other words, he's, he's patient, he doesn't anger quickly. V'rav chesed ve'emet, and with much kindness and truth. Notzer chesed lalafim, he keeps kindness for thousands. Nose avon v'fesha v'chata'a, he lifts, he bears three different types of sin. Avon and fesha and chata'a. V'nake lo yinake. Now this is not where we, we, when we say the 13 attributes, we start v'nake. And he cleanses it. In other words, he forgives it, right? Now, that's not the original 
attributes. The attributes isn't he shall surely not forgive it. In other words, he's lifting the sin so that people aren't killed right away, right? He's bearing the sin so it doesn't wipe everyone out, okay? But what does he do? Poked avon avot abanim ba'avabrevenim And he then it kind of doles out the sin of fathers on their sons and on their grandsons, on their great, on the third generation, on the fourth generation. Now that doesn't sound super merciful, right? But if we we actually actually the idea is, and I've mentioned this before, so excuse me for the repetition. I've mentioned this before, but it, it does bear repeating this idea that sin is an actual thing. Sin isn't something you can just wipe away. Sin is something that is, like, as, as I've said before, if someone murders someone, he can feel terrible about it, but the person's still dead. The idea is that a sin is something almost physical. It creates real damage, okay? So that damage must be fixed. That sin must be paid for. What happens if you expect the current generation to pay for all its sins? The current generation will be killed. They will die because the ultimate punishment for sin is death. If they really pay, so then if you wipe out this generation, then there's nothing left, right? That's not what God wants to do. God is merciful and God is patient. He's slow to anger. He's a patient God. And so what does he do? He stretches the sin out over generations. Every generation pays a little bit. And that's how you can pay in installments. All right. And that's the idea there. And what is in this verse, is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing, right? These are the attributes of good, of God. These are, this is a good thing. I, I see Melissa has something to say. Go ahead. I'm thinking of past podcasts where you've talked about some people just being born with already with an innate evil that was just part of them. And it, like it was in their DNA almost. And it's, thinking like, can it be passed? Which one was that? I think I was talking, the idea that, and I think what you're referring to, is when I talked about the idea, particularly in the Second Temple period, that people, because they are human, have a natural inclination towards sin. Not that specific people, but that people in general have a natural inclination towards sin because they are physical beings. But it's some more than others, though. Um, no, what am I thinking? Like, well, okay, look. I'm not sure exactly what you're referring to, but in general, the idea seems to be in a lot of the Second Temple period stuff that, on the one hand, like, if we go to, let's say, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is, I think, I mean, I spent a lot of time on Dead Sea Scrolls, so their idea is, well, okay, you are you belong to Blial. So there's certain ones where they'd be like, okay, they're just, they're just, like, bad, but there's another, but it's from different periods in the sect, it seems. Like, there's a period in which what they want to say is... Oh, these poor, deluded souls, they were misled by Blial into thinking that the laws that they selected are actually the right laws when they're actually the wrong laws, right? And there's another period or group within the sect that says it's, it, it depends. There's an argument about whether this reflects a different group or whether it reflects a different stage in the sect, which and I'm talking about the Sarchayachad, right, the, that, that says that, oh, we're the lot of God and they're the lot of Blial. Right. And then there's this idea that somehow they basically were meant to be bad from the beginning. But how do we know? Because they chose the wrong thing. Right. But it's um, and you do have this basic idea in the Dead Sea Scrolls that people somehow have parts. They're like X parts good and X parts bad. And there's some kind of way that you can find it by lots and this weird this weird stuff that we don't quite know exactly how it was supposed to work um, and at what stage they did it. But in general... I mean, I obviously am a little biased, but I tend to see that that there's a lot of free will involved in every, um, 
well, you know what? It's not necessarily because the Dead Sea sect does is very is basically deterministic. Like even though they absolutely emphasize free will in when when you're choosing their laws, and then they're less like, hey, buddy, it's your choice. They do have this basic determinism that says these people were were destined to be bad, and we are destined to be good. Right, but it's also always that we're destined to be good. If you're one of us, you were not destined to be bad. So that's no excuse, right? But they also have this basic idea that people have this natural inclination towards sin, knowing that you have the natural inclination, you have to know not to follow that inclination. But back to your point. So what's what's your uh, connection here? It sounds like it's something that can be passed down almost like eye color, like a trait. Um, the way you put it initially, there really isn't. I I really think that particularly in the second temple period, but in general, there wasn't this kind of idea that genetically one is, I don't think that that's part of it. I don't think that there's an idea that one is genetically predisposed to one thing over another. I don't think that idea is there, except when it comes to the national level, because there are ideas that, aha, this whole nation is crummy and stuff like that. So there are certain things that, that follow from that, but in general, and in fact, in fact, Prophets over and over again will say the previous generation did bad, but you guys need to do good. Like, don't do like generation after generation, you guys kept doing bad. Like, it's a big surprise, right? It's not like, oh, well, previous generation did bad. What do you expect for this one? God keeps trying and the prophets keep trying. And the idea is that you always have this, this opportunity to, to do good, right? You don't really, even the, the closest, oh, I think, I think I know what you're referring to is in 4th Ezra and 2nd Baruch when they're talking about having the evil heart from Adam right? Then it sounds like it's almost a genetic predisposition because it's passed down from Adam, right? But it's for all humans. It's not just for some humans. And here, one of the things that's not being pointed out, it's all on God. Note that the way this is being described is not that, and the sons and grandchildren are crummy, right? It's that God will visit the sin on the future generations. In other words, the point is not that the kids sin. The point is that the, the forefathers said, now, of course, in traditional Judaism, what do we say? We say, well, this is only if the children continued the sin of the father, right? Now, what we'll see as we continue, we'll see that in, as we move towards the end of the first temple period, this absolutely jives with, for example, Yechezkel's understanding of how this whole thing works. But in its original context, what it seems to be saying is God is a patient God, so he doesn't wipe out a whole generation. He stretches the sin out. And this is, and it's just like taking a loan and then paying it back in installments. And the idea is if you take a 50-year loan and then you pay it back in years of 50 of, in 50 years of installments, if the person dies after 10, his kids are going to keep paying. How yeah. exactly is that helpful to stretch it out? Yeah, okay. So, so the, the way it's, it's helpful is by not wiping out the first generation. That, that's really the way it's helpful. And you see, you see that exact thing or almost that exact thing? Not quite, actually, because it's that generation. When you have the sin of the ego, right, the sin of the spies, when they say, when the spies come back and they say, they're like, oh, it's so scary. Let's not go into Israel, all that stuff. And the nation listens to them, except, you know, the nation listens, the, the, the men particularly listen to them. The punishment is not that what the mercy that's received from God is not that they're not going to die. They're going to die, but it's all stretched out, right? It's all, essentially, they, instead of being wiped out, right, everyone, they are going to spend a much longer time in the desert. And until, essentially, until this generation 
dies off, and then the next generation is going to get to go to the land because this generation sinned. Now, that actually is much, it's not intergenerational, so it's much easier for us to swallow. It's an idea of God being, you know, the people still have to pay. They don't get to come into Israel if they rejected Israel, is the idea, but they're not all wiped out right away. In this case, it's more like if a generation sins, they're not wiped out right away. Instead, God will kind of, again, have them pay in installments over generations so that a single generation is not wiped out. Because if a single generation were wiped out, then everyone's wiped out, right? So God is patient that way. So that's kind of why it's better, quote unquote. What does it explain for us? And we did this, this, you know, we've said this before. What does it explain? What's the explanatory power of of a belief like this? I always like to say, why would someone want to believe this? What's the reason to believe something like this? Because they want to believe that they didn't do what was so wrong and that previous generations were at fault. Oh, that's a good point. We're going to see that a lot with Yermiao and Yechesko. But another thing that it explains is what? If I see someone who's really amazing, right? They, you know, give all their food to the poor and they, they volunteer all over the place and then they, you know, they get really sick and they die. And you're like, what the heck, right? What What is that? And if if you honestly believe in this system, right, you can say, well, it, previous generations sinned, right? And now I understand why. It doesn't make me feel good, but I understand why it happened, right? Now, I obviously, I think for us today, this would not be a very comforting thought, right? People's worldviews change dramatically <laughs> over time. And I think, and personally for me, when I read um, biblical texts, what I like to look at is, first of all, what did it mean to its original audience? And then what did it mean for future audiences? And how does how do we get that meaning for future audiences? We get there by continuous interpretation and extension. So with when we talk about the Bible, we talk about the five books of Moses, let's say, and then the prophets, etc. So we have different kind of explanations from the prophets. And we also then have layers and layers and layers of interpretation. This is the idea of scripture. When you have something that you call scripture, which means you've sealed it, you can't change it anymore. And yet this sealed thing must remain relevant. It must remain relevant to every single generation, right? If that's the idea of it, right? The idea of scripture is it's a sealed document. And by sealed, I mean, you can't add to it anymore, right? You, I, I can't. I can't change this verse and say, look, now it's, it's you know, Marion's Bible. Because the last person who did that was Thomas Jefferson. You know about Jefferson's Bible, right? Yeah, so Thomas Jefferson did it, but Marion Brand cannot do it, right? <laughs> so, but I can't say, okay, I don't like this verse. I'm going to change it. Everyone's going to say that's not the Bible, right? That's not the Bible. So it's the Bible. It's It's sealed. And yet, and yet, it must remain relevant, okay? How does it remain relevant? Continuous interpretation. That's how it remains relevant. The interpretation itself becomes part of Scripture. And that's at least part of this idea of Shibim Panim La Torah, that the Torah has 70 faces, has 70, you know, aspects, that these aspects themselves that we start reading into the text become part of the Torah itself. Because that is the idea of a, of a continuously relevant Scripture. So we have this puzzling verse. And again, here there isn't a problem. It's not like the dialogue between Avraham and God. It's not a problem. Okay. It's considered a good thing. But I would like to point out for you that once again, just like in, just like in our uh, collective punishment approach, we have a difference between the way God acts and the way people are supposed to act, right? Because in in Dvarim Chavdalet Tetzayin, that's in Deuteronomy twenty four sixteen, 
we read lo yumtu avot al banim uvanim lo yumtu al avot ish bechet o yumato. Fathers will not should not be put to death for sons, and sons should not be put to death for fathers. Each person should only put be put to death for his own sin. So in the realm of human justice, you are not allowed to do this. You might say, well, who would do this? Well, they do this in North Korea. North Korea is someone who betrays North Korea. They they, they and I think I think it goes for through their grandchildren. In other words, their kids born in jail who will live their entire lives in jail because of this rule. If someone actually betrays, but kind of betrays the government or whatever, then and they are expecting a child. That child themselves will live their entire lives in jail, right? So, so that it, you can absolutely have a law like that, but you're not allowed to, right? You specifically, you as a, a human beings are not allowed to do that in their law. That's not justice. You can't kill a child for what a parent does, or a parent for what a child does. Okay, so. So fine. So now we have this, the, it, we have it set up. Okay. This is the way God acts with the world, at least in Shemot and Exodus. This is the way humans are supposed to act, at least in Devarim and Deuteronomy. How does it play out? Well, if we look at, for example, Malachim Bet, Second Kings. Okay. This is a, a classic example. If we look at Chaf Gimel Chaf Hei, that's 2325. So we, there we're reading about Amyoshiyahu. Right, Yoshiyahu is this great king. He kind of brings back the Torah. He brings back Pesach. He wipes out the different, you know, foreign worship and and also places outside of Jerusalem where there's where there's worship. He is great, right? And that's how he's described in Second Kings. And it says, and like him, there was no king before him that returned to God with his whole heart and his whole soul or his whole life, his whole being, and his whole strength as all the Torah of Moshe. And after him, no one, no one rose like him. So he's great. But God did not return from his great anger that he was angry with Yehuda, with Judah, for all the angering things that Menashe, right? The previous king that Menashe made him angry with. Essentially, God at that point has already decided that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, despite the fact that Yoshiao is a good king. Jerusalem will eventually be destroyed. Okay. And not only that, but Yoshiahu. And this is not in the in the story. It's not a hundred percent clear. It's clear that despite Yoshiao being so good, and part of the reason why he's so good, he's actually trying to prevent the destruction. He wants to prevent the destruction for the uh, neglect of the Torah. Yet he will not be able to because Menashe was so bad that God's still going to, to punish Yehuda for it. And then Paro the king of Egypt, uh, rises up against Ashur, and Yoshiahu, who has a an alliance with with Ashur with Assyria, goes up against him and he kills him in Megiddo. Okay, and so here he dies before his time. Now in Second Kings, it's not that's not clear. It's not clear whether you're supposed to say ah, this is also because of Menashe, because it, the talking about Menashe angering him is connected to. God's decision to destroy Jerusalem it says, why did Yoshio not get them out of that? But the idea is that this kind of earlier sin is still carrying over, despite the fact that Yoshio was really good. And Yoshio also dies young. 
so that's how it kind of plays out in Second Kings. By the way, in Chronicles in Devarim in Bet, which is written in the Second Temple period, it makes it very clear that Yahushiahu was foolish when he went up against the king of Egypt. He was not acting according to really what God, you know, he, he was being foolish and being being headstrong. And that's kind of why he got what was coming to him in that case. So it's a little bit clearer in the later account that, oh, well, Yoshiahu messed up by being foolish or being headstrong or not really doing. He should have seen what God actually wanted in terms of not going up against power Nacho. And because he did anyway, he was killed young. Okay, so that is how that, that idea plays out on a national scale, right? The idea that if you have one king who's evil, evil and another king that follows him is amazing, that's not necessarily enough to keep from still paying for the sin of the evil king. That's a kind of crummy setup. And in fact, what we see is that, and again, what does this explain? This explains why a bad thing happens even if the people seem good or why a bad thing happens even if... This king seems to have been doing all the right things. Okay, so that's what it explains. But at a certain point, this is not enough. It kind of breaks down, all right? And it starts breaking down, time-wise, at the end of the first temple period, when on the cusp of destruction, okay? So we see this in Yermiyahu and Jeremiah. We also see in Yechezkel and Ezekiel. So, Melissa, you have a question? I understand the theory of how spreading out punishment is merciful if you don't get rid of it, you wipe them out as fast and spread that out. That makes sense to me on a communal level. But individually, I don't yet see how that's more patient and more merciful to, if it's not a whole community, I'm still trying to understand that part. That is an excellent point. And what makes it an excellent point, you know the difference between a good point and an excellent point? An excellent point brings me to my next section. That's that's what an excellent point does. That's perfect. When people start thinking more individually, when people start start thinking in terms of individual consequences and seeing their fate as an individual fate and not necessarily a communal fate, that's when this really breaks down. And this is what's really starting to happen at the end, at the end of the first temple period. Possibly why? Now I say this, and of course it's not 100% true, because we're going to see it starts, it's breaking down a little bit with Yirmiyahu, even though they are in Yehuda. But once you start having an active exiled community, in other words, what happened at the end of the first temple period, you had different stages of exile. And what this different stages of exile meant was that you had an initial group of exiles. That initial group of exiles went out with the king and, and another king, of course, was appointed in his place. They went out with the king and they were the nobility. They were the people with power and they were the craftsmen and they were all exiled, right, to Babylonia. So they were exiled. And here's this exilic community that's staying very much in touch with Jerusalem. They want to get back to Jerusalem. They're hoping that they'll be able to return. And there is, they're constantly looking towards Jerusalem. They're very much in touch with them. And yet their reality is different. Their reality is different. Possibly their fate is different. There are people back in Jerusalem who are saying, aha, God rejected you. Now we get your land. We know that from things that Yechezkel says or the things that Ezekiel says. I'm calling him Yechezkel from now on. So if I say Yechezkel, people who don't understand, I mean Ezekiel. Okay, Yirmiyahu is Jeremiah. So people, when they start, they they start having, they have different fates. Different things are going to happen to them. They're still part of the same nation. They're still thinking of the same thing. They very much have the temple in Jerusalem on their minds. 
And yet they have different futures. They have different fates. People are starting to think in a much more individual way. And once you're thinking in a much more individual way, not that no one ever thought of themselves as an individual before they did, but in terms of their fate and what's going to happen and the consequences from God, they're thinking in an, in an individual way. And then this breaks down. It, it doesn't work anymore. It doesn't make sense anymore. How can you say that? And what you start seeing is the prophets are reflecting that. Let's take a look. First, first let's look at Yirmiyahu. Okay, Yirmiyahu is with the people who stayed, right? He stays in Yehuda and Judah. He stays in Yehuda. He stays in Jerusalem. He's with the people who stayed, okay? And what's interesting is he's talking about the age of redemption. You could say the Messianic age, even though it's not necessarily, not necessarily connected to a specific Messiah. He's talking about the Messianic age, and he says, There are days coming. I'm reading from Lamed Aleph Chafav, that's 3126. I'm going to plant the house of Israel and the house of Yehuda back in Yehuda. And God says, just as I was determined to destroy them, so I will be determined to rebuild them and replant them. Okay, in those days, you know, in this great future age when Israel and, and Yehuda return to their ancestral land, in those days, no longer will they say the fathers ate unripe grapes and the teeth of the sons were dulled. Right? In other words, what have people been saying? There's a phrase that's popular enough that people actually repeat it, which is, Oh, our fathers did something, either did something stupid or sinned, right? They ate unripe grapes, and we're the ones whose teeth are dulled, okay? So we're the ones who are paying for it. It says, in this future age, you're not going to be able to say that anymore. But each person will die for their own sin. Any person who eats the unripe grape, he's the person who's going to have his teeth dulled. Okay, that's what Yermiyahu says. Yermiyahu says, in this great messianic age, you will no longer be able to say that, that this generation is paying for previous generations. Everyone will pay for their own sin. That's because it's already starting to break down this idea that, which worked well, as you put it, it worked better when you look at it collectively. But as soon as you look at it individually, it seems tremendously unfair. And now people are starting to think in a different way. And if you think individually, it seems tremendously unfair. And so Yermiyahu is saying, in the future... When things are all going to be much more fair because we're going to be rebuilt, it's not going to work that way. Now, Yechezko says something else. Yechezko says, it's not like that now. Now, Yechezko is sitting with the exiles. He's sitting with the exiles in Babylonia. And Yechezko is known for his individualistic approach to sin and punishment. He's known for this, okay? So, on Yom Kippur, we're always quoting Sukim. We're always quoting verses from Yechezko because he's the guy. He's the guy who first gives us this idea of individual repentance. Okay, then they're not that it's not that it's nowhere else in the Bible, but he gives it this in order to say this is the way the world works. So what we're going to see in Yechezkel, and that's going to be in the next episode. What we're going to see in Yechezkel is how this is already not true, and that works for collective punishment, and it also works for intergenerational punishment. In other words, once you start looking at it through individualistic eyes, you can no longer say that this is the way God runs his world. So we're going to go in-depth in that in the next episode. So thank you very much, and thank you, Melissa. 
Oh, thank you. I would love to hear your comments. Please leave your comments at understandingsin.com. And uh, I'm going to soon kind of catch up on, on a lot of the comments. So thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. Take care. Be well. Bye. Bye. You have been listening to Understanding Sin and Evil with Dr. Miriam Brand. Learn more at understandingsin.com.